0: Section 4 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 2, Progress of the Reformation in England under Edward VI, 1547-53, Part 2. By his conduct in this matter, Somerset had set against himself the landowners, and had only beguiled the peasants to their ruin. His policy had failed as regarded Scotland, and it failed no less as regarded France. He was of opinion that peace must be made with France at the price of the surrender of Boulogne, of the capture of which, in Henry VIII's reign, England was still proud. This step, however, was so unpopular that he did not dare to take it. France, encouraged by the troubled state of England, and having no fear of the emperor, who was busied in reducing Germany, sent a large army against Boulogne in August 1549. It was clear that Boulogne would soon fall, as Somerset had not sufficient troops at his command to meet the French army in the field. Added to this, Somerset had become personally unpopular. The execution of his brother Thomas Lord Seymour, however justifiable, had given a great shock to popular feeling. There is no doubt that Lord Seymour, who was Lord High Admiral, was desirous of supplanting his brother. The times were times of wild ambition and desperate plotting for place and power. Lord Seymour had married the late king's widow with indecent haste, and after her early death, had planned to obtain the hand of the Princess Elizabeth. He had tried to set the young king against the protector and to win his confidence himself. He was gathering troops for an attack upon his brother and was robbing the government by receiving money fraudulently coined. On these charges he was attainted and was beheaded in 1548. Somerset was rid of a dangerous rival, but the popular voice was loudly raised against the ambition that would require a brother's blood. Somerset, though sincere in his zeal for Protestantism, was also ambitious for his own greatness, and was proud, haughty, and high-handed in his behavior. He treated the young king with harshness and kept him under great restraint. He himself affected almost kingly magnificence. He wrote to the king of France as brother. He built himself a splendid palace, Somerset House, in the Strand, and spared nothing to make it worthy of his position. To provide a site for it, he had pulled down a parish church and carried off materials from the ruins of chapels. His personal haughtiness to those around him had become very offensive, and one of his friends did not scruple to write to him. Of late your grace has grown in great choleric fashions, wheresoever you are contrary to that which you have conceived in your head. The opposition to Somerset soon found a leader in John Dudley, Earl of Warwick he was the son of the minister of henry the 7th who had been put to death amid the joy of the people soon after the accession of henry the 8th but henry the 8th delighted to show that he could cast down and could raise up john dudley was gradually taken into his favour was created viscount lyle and was left one of the executors of the king's will and as such a member of the privy council When the Earl of Hartford was raised to the title of Duke of Somerset, Lord Lyle was also created Earl of Warwick. Gradually he had gained an ascendancy over the council, and to him, rather than to Somerset, was given the command against the insurgent peasants. When he returned from his victory over Ket, he openly opposed the protector, and at last a quarrel broke out between the council and Somerset. Both parties began to raise troops, but Somerset found that his popularity was gone. He was obliged to submit, to resign the office of protector, to ask pardon for his offenses, and to retire into private life, December 1549. His life was spared for a little, but he was found to be too powerful for the safety of his opponents. Changes of ministry were in those days thought-secure, only when established by the death of the fallen minister. Somerset plotted to regain his position. He formed a plan to raise London in his defense, and so laid himself open to a charge of high treason, for which he was condemned to death and beheaded on January 22, 1552. On Somerset's fall, Warwick was the head of the government. In spite of the unpopularity of the measure, he was compelled to carry out Somerset's plan of peace with France, There were no hopes of saving Boulogne. England was impoverished and had no troops. Her chief men were engaged, during the young king's minority, in struggling for their own ambitious ends. Her people were oppressed by poverty and distracted by religious discord. Peace, therefore, was made with France in the spring of 1550, and Boulogne was restored. Scotland, also which was weary of war, was included in the peace it was important for the French king at this time to have his hands free that he might be able to help the Protestants in Germany and strike a blow at Charles V. Warwick was not like Somerset, a man of deep religious convictions, nor had he any object except self-interest in his desire for power. The Catholic party at first hoped that he would undo his rival's Protestant measures. Perhaps, however, he was afraid if he did so— Of again strengthening Somerset's hands by putting him at the head of a strong religious party. The young king also had formed very decided Protestant opinions, and Warwick could not have made any changes without coming into direct collision with the king, in whose name and for whose interest he professed to govern. The Catholic expectations, therefore, were disappointed, and Warwick, having declared for the reformation, helped to carry out measures of a more decidedly Protestant character. The success of Charles V in Germany drove many of the leading German reformers to seek shelter elsewhere. In England, they were kindly received by Cranmer, whose own opinions advanced still further in a Protestant direction from his intercourse with them. The most famous of these exiles, Peter Martyr and Buche, were appointed to teach theology at the two universities— and everywhere, the ideas of the English reformers received a strong impulse from Lutheran teachers. This led to a great increase of reforming zeal, but also to greater lawlessness. Many different opinions prevailed on many matters, and this was viewed with alarm, as the unity of the state was believed to depend on a unity of religious belief. Hence the prayer book was again revised— and its use made compulsory by an act of Parliament, which rendered it penal to be present at any religious service different from that therein prescribed. Gardiner, Bishop of Winchester, and Bonner, Bishop of London, who had before been suspected and imprisoned, were now deprived of their sees. To define more clearly the limits of the changes which the English Church had made, Archbishop Cranmer, in imitation of the Continental Reformers, compiled and issued the Articles of Religion. These at first numbered 42, but have since been reduced to 39. They, like the prayer book, have undergone some alterations since Cranmer's day, but in the main they continue such as he first issued. England was now decidedly Protestant, but it would take some time before the changes that had been made could sink down thoroughly amongst the people. The wildness and lawlessness of some Protestant teachers did much to alarm the people and make them fear the tendency of the changes which had been made. This led to repression on the part of the government, and when the reformers are charged with intolerance, it must be remembered that religion could not in those times be a matter merely of individual opinion. Upon the maintenance of unity, up to a certain point, depended social order and national strength. It is to be regretted that the leading statesmen under Edward VI were influenced almost entirely by selfish motives, and that many of the leading ecclesiastics spent much of their time and energies in quarrels about points of small importance. The Reformed doctrines were not commended to the ignorant people by the wisdom, the charity, or the alluring character of its chief political promoters. As an instance of the want of any directing zeal may be taken the dealings of the king's advisers with Ireland, where, with a view of discouraging the use of the Irish language, it was ordered that the Irish should only have the church services read to them in English. This is one reason of the ill success of the Reformation movement in Ireland. It came to the people in a form imposed upon them by their rulers, a form which professed to appeal only to their convictions yet which was conveyed in a language they could not understand. Protestantism in England had not as yet become a national movement. The political leaders had adopted it, some through conviction, some for interested motives. It was genuinely accepted and zealously spread by a number of earnest converts, but the great mass of the people were content to obey the laws, though their lingering sentiment inclined in favor of the old state of things whose evils were forgotten now that they had been removed, while the evils of the change were severely felt and their influence on the present misery exaggerated. The failing health of the young king filled the supporters of the Reformation with alarm. According to the settlement of the succession under Henry VIII, the Princess Mary, his daughter by Catherine of Aragon, was to succeed. Mary never forgot her Spanish descent nor her mother's wrongs, and the religious change in England was necessarily connected in her mind with the thoughts of an insult offered to herself by the declaration of her illegitimacy. She never forgot also that she was the emperor's cousin, and the example of his policy in Germany was not likely to be thrown away upon her. The possibility of her accession filled the dominant party with alarm. They saw in it destruction to themselves and their plans. As Edward VI's health grew worse, and it became evident that he had not long to live, the ambition of the Duke of Northumberland, for such was Warwick's new title, found out a scheme for altering the succession to the throne in a manner favourable to himself and Protestantism. Edward VI was convinced that it was his duty to save the country from the danger of a return to papistry. He was persuaded that he had power to settle the succession by will as much as his father had. He forgot that his father had had that power conferred upon him by act of Parliament. When once he was convinced, he shared all his father's determination and strength of will. The legal scruples of the judges were overruled by his stern and imperious commands. The moral scruples of Archbishop Cranmer had to bow before the young king's will— With his own hand, the dying boy drew out the draft of an instrument which was to secure to England a Protestant queen. Mary, he argued, was barred by illegitimacy, as was also Elizabeth. By Henry VIII's will, the line of his younger sister Mary, who had married Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, had been preferred for the succession of the line to his elder sister Margaret, who had married James IV of Scotland. Mary's eldest daughter had married Grey, Duke of Suffolk, and their eldest child, the Lady Jane Grey, who had been recently married to Northumberland's son, the Lord Guilford Dudley, was chosen by the dying Edward for his successor. Northumberland counted upon the Protestant feeling in London to support him. He strengthened his family connections by intermarriages, and trusted that France would work with him to prevent the emperor's cousin from ascending the English throne. When Edward VI died on July 6, 1553, at the early age of 17, Queen Jane was duly proclaimed. The people, however, taken by surprise at this change, received their new queen in silence. The English people have always respected law, and religious discord had not yet created among them such strong party feeling as to make them ready for violent measures. Northumberland soon found that he was mistaken in his hopes of strong popular support. He had also not succeeded in seizing the Princess Mary. She fled to Norwich, where she had been proclaimed queen, and where many lords flocked to her standard. Moreover, Northumberland had difficulties with the queen whom he had chosen— Though only a girl of sixteen, she was wise beyond her years and had a high sense of the duties of her office. Her first exclamation when she heard that she was queen was a fervent prayer that God would give her strength to wield her scepter for the nation's good. Northumberland found that he could not use her as a puppet. She refused to have her husband crowned with herself. Those who had joined Northumberland from purely selfish motives began to fall away when they saw that he would not be absolute even if he succeeded. Northumberland's scheme therefore entirely failed. He advanced against Mary but found that his troops fell away from him. At last in Cambridge, losing heart at the desertions, he proclaimed Mary Queen while the tears ran down his face. Mary now entered London unopposed. The Lady Jane was committed to the Tower. Northumberland pleaded guilty to the charge of high treason and was beheaded. On the scaffold he told the people that he died in the old religion and that ambition only had led him to conform to the late changes. It is impossible to feel any sympathy for him. He was a man without any principle except that of self-advancement, and his plan to alter the succession was badly laid and negligently carried out his selfish policy, his irreligious life, and his hypocrisy or cowardice at the last made him a most fatal friend to the Reformation. It was because the affairs of England were managed by men like him under Edward VI that Protestant principles did not take deeper root, and the reaction that followed became possible. End of section four.